Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Ms. Wolf, is it true that you composed an entire concerto orchestrated from the sounds of you nailing cheeseburgers to the wall? Because that's just fantastically creative. Hold on a second. I've got Granny Smith pinning down the thief who stole her apples. I'm going to add roller skates to her so she can catch up and start throwing baseballs and bananas. That sounds fantastic. So once again, you've taken us down a path of pure invention and absurdism. What? Me? Oh, no, this is just an app I've gotten kind of addicted to. What are we talking about? Well, the major retrospective of your work coming up in Berlin. I'm especially interested in the multicolored clown mannequins vacuuming up tesserae, the tiny tiles in ancient Roman mosaic. Miss Wolf, are you even listening to me? Wait, 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 just one second. I'm floating in space and collecting tiny fragments of the fractured city of Caledonia so I can build them in the skyways that'll propel me through the air. Again, it is a thrill to see an artist such as yourself creating vivid new ideas right before my eyes. Huh? No, this is something called Bastion. You play it on your tablet. I'm at level eight already. Ms. Wolf, if I may be so bold, you are one of the most influential creative figures of the last 30 years. But it does seem as though your output is being subsumed by your internet addiction. What's that? I didn't hear you. Would you mind lifting the cup of water to my mouth? I am so dehydrated, but, you know, if I take my hands off the game, I won't be able to rewind time, so... You know, it does look very cool. Yeah, doesn't it? I mean, why create anything when you've got this? Here, use your finger like this to move Zoof through the enemy line. Yeah, you got it. Meanwhile, check out the show about the state of imagination and creativity in the digital era. And now, the creator of Aristotle contemplating a bust of Bill Gates, Colin McEnroe. So what we're going to do first is talk to you about imagination. What, what is that? What is that word? We throw it around as though it were some kind of monolithic thing. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about how imagination and creativity function from childhood into adulthood. Um, and then later in the show, we are going to overlay the whole question of digital life and specifically the life of what are now called digital natives, which would be the people born eh, sometime between 1995 and 2000. So they've never really known anything that wasn't at least tinctured with digital life. So um, what does that environment do to them? But first, we really have to sort of figure out what it is we're even talking about when we talk about a child's imagination and whether that imagination persists into adulthood. With us is Dr. Paul Harris, a developmental psychologist and professor of education at Harvard, interested in the early development of cognition, emotion, and imagination. He's the author of several books, including The Work of the Imagination, and most recently, Trusting What You're Told, How Children Learn from Others. I think we're going to explore both landscapes as we go through this conversation. But uh, Dr. Paul Harris, welcome to our show. Thank you. Good to be here. So when we talk about imagination, when we use that word, 
I'm, as an adult, I can attempt to imagine life in the Roman Empire, and I'll be drawing from all kinds of things. You know, I can read Tacitus. I can watch uh, old uh, I. Claudius uh, reruns or, or Rome on HBO. I, I can feed into this a whole bunch of information and then assemble my imagined version of the Roman Empire. Is that the same as a child inventing Ab Nilo, a fantasy world in which her dolls and stuffed animals play? Are we doing the same thing? Well, I would be tempted to say that we are, yes. That's to say, as you've emphasized, children can create an imaginary world, and they do that in their pretend play to varying degrees. Um, But when they listen to your telling them a story, they equally will construct an imagined world based on what you're telling them. But similarly, when you tell them Um, a narrative which is actually historical, they're invited to do the same thing, to imagine the situation, the events, the characters. So I I myself, I don't know whether everybody would agree with me, but I myself see a great deal of continuity between um, the imagination that children freely display and pretend play, the imagination they bring to bear on make-believe stories, and the imagination they use when they think about... um, factual narratives. And yet, it's kind of a truism that we age out of that capacity for pure imagination. I mean, you think of the end of Peter Pan, Peter returns to find that Wendy has become, more or less, uh, an eye blink for him, uh, a grown woman, essentially while he was distracted, and now she's incapable of participation in the life that he led with her before and wants to lead, and he weeps. There's there's almost this idenic fall, right? She's lost. She's not a child anymore. She can't fly just by imagining the ability to fly, and I think that that story resonates for us as a metaphor for the stiffness and the loss of imaginative elasticity that that comes upon us as we age. Um, so we at least have this mythology, right, that as we as we age, we become less freely imaginative. It sounds like you're saying, though, that that is a mythology as opposed to a reality. Yes, I'm skeptical about this um, slightly depressed <laughs> stance toward <laughs> grown-up imagination. Um, I think there's some truth to the claim that the imagination, so to speak, goes underground. It's less obviously visible. It's not as if too many adults engage in overt pretend play, although you know some some do. I mean, they dress up as colonial. Uh, soldiers or or revolutionary soldiers uh, or they you know they meet on the battlefield um, but for the most part um, the imagination that an older child displays or that an adult displays is so to speak mental it's not acted out but I, I, I don't think there's um, any any obvious shrinking of that capacity when we we're talking about older children and adults it's just it's just a little bit more overt when we watch a 3-year-old so in a way that that argues for the notion that some of what we talk about when we talk about ina- imagination or lack thereof especially among adults has more to do with social conditioning and a social construction of what behavior should be i mean you were talking about civil war reenactors you know the next uh, st- stepping stone from there are what are called live action role players who larpers who act out you know these these fantasy stories and costumes and stuff except that those people are kind of looked down 
down on, right? There's kind of a sense that, oh, get a life. Um, you're, not, you're not, in fact, engaging with reality. You're lost in some kind of dream world. Um, and, and so if, in fact, there is this inelasticity that's overtaking us, it, it may not be cognitive. It may, may not be organic uh, in the brain. It might be something that our society builds that restricts our imagination. Well, it's true that uh, we may well be tempted to be judgmental about these grown-up displays of of sort of pretend play. Um, And there's a sense in which they might well appear somewhat scripted. I mean, it's not as if it's not as if there's necessarily any deep originality in the reenactment, and indeed, maybe maybe these participants would frown on <laughs> deep originality in those contexts. It's more of a question of indeed reenactment. Um, but I suppose that brings me to a point that I would also emphasise about the imagination um, and the way it's been studied, namely that we're too uh, perhaps quick and judgmental in the sense that we want to move to the upper reaches of the imagination, the outer bounds of the imagination, rather than recognising that actually we deploy it in all sorts of ways in our, in our daily lives. I mean, if we're, if, even if we're thinking about um, what's for dinner or whom we might invite, there's a sense in which we're you know, recruiting our imagination. So for me, um, it's important to keep in mind it's somewhat pedestrian prosaic everyday aspects as well as the as well as the further reaches so you know by that definition imagination is one of the things that keeps us from going crazy because otherwise we would be constantly limited to what we could see in front of us what we could uh, experience directly exactly uh, exactly it enables us to think about uh, the future um, uh, and we have to plan for the future um, we do so to varying degrees and, you know, with varying degrees of success. But, but nevertheless, one of the distinguishing features of human beings as compared to non-human primates is their ability to look further ahead and to plan. Um, I'm going to press you just a little bit more on that, my, on my declinist uh, theory uh, one last time and, and see if we can at least kind of extrude one nuance here, which is that it seems to me, and I'm sure you see this a lot because you work directly with children and observe children a lot of the time, if you take an adult and say, go off and play with those kids um, and or go off and play with that child, um, there is often a stiffness the adult has, right? It takes the adult might eventually succeed in kind of dropping down into the fantasy talk of the child, but if it's not your child, you don't know the child. It really it's quite an effort for a lot of adults to play in that particular way, in the way that the children do, and and I think we see that once again as some kind of calcification. That all right, you're not as freely imaginative as you were when you were five or six. Um, but now that you're talking, I'm wondering if, well, maybe that's more just sort of society's norms and what we've decided we should be as adults as, to, as opposed to what our real limitations are. Yes. I guess there are also <clears throat> marked individual differences here. I mean, some people some people do indeed, as you say, feel, feel uncomfortable when they're invited to play with a three- or four-year-old. But other people clearly relish the prospect and it gives them gives them license to do things that they wouldn't ordinarily indulge themselves in. So, but I'm tempted to say that these these are mostly matters of of 
as you say, social convention and social restraint rather than any deep-seated inability to engage in that kind of activity. So um, as a child develops, um, you know, we talk about um, the mind as kind of a unified whole, but the children that I know seem pretty good at dividing up their relationships with reality. And it's not hard, I think, to find an eight-year-old who exhibits some fairly hard and cynical notions about what it means to be cool and what it means to understand the world. I've actually been dealing with one of those a little bit this summer, but who also believes in the Easter Bunny. Um, that that somehow or other, I mean, part of growing up and becoming um, successfully adapted to your environment means you've got to sort of filter some things out. You've got to figure out that Harry Potter's just a story. There aren't wizards. You can't make, you know, uh, dazzling light come out of a stick the way he can. Um, on the other hand, it, it, it does seem like it doesn't all happen in one unified phalanx marching forward, that children kind of, they, they divide this stuff up and, and keep some of the more um, creative or fantasist sides uh, alive a little while. Yes, yeah, so I'd, I'd agree with much of what you say. First of all, um, I think it's pretty early on that children are able to make this fundamental distinction between make-believe and reality. So even two- and three-year-olds are reasonably good at this. And a three, three-year-old who has an imaginary companion um, might well explain to an adult um, who seems to be slightly puzzled that oh this you know this this imaginary companion is just make believe it's not it's not a real person but having said that having said that you know children can make this conceptual distinction as you're pointing out there may be some cases which require further reflection on their part and I think um, if we take, say, Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny, it's not very surprising that children take time to allocate those to the fantasy world rather than the world of reality because most of the adults around them and indeed uh, most of the less cynical peers that they encounter will support their belief in Santa Claus and, and the Easter Bunny now. If we then ask ourselves, well, how is it that children eventually give up that belief? Um, I think we don't really know, and they're, they're roughly speaking two different ideas about this. Some people assume that um, as the child gets older, their understanding of the of the physics of the situation just improves. So they realise that you know Santa Claus can't possibly get to every child in on the planet in one night, and so doubts creep in. Or, you know, how come he knows exactly where they live or what they wanted this year for Christmas? Um, so that's one theory. We could think of that as this kind of rationalist child. But the other theory is that as children get older, the likelihood of their encountering some more sophisticated child who's sceptical increases, steadily increases, be it in the, you know, in the schoolyard or... Um, even one of their one of their siblings who's who's slightly older and and despite parental <laughs> command so to speak lets the lets the cat out of the bag so i would say myself that it's more likely to be that second account which is the correct one that as children get older this particular um make believe fantasy is 
is just doesn't receive the kind of support that it has for the younger child. And so they become more sceptical. Or, or what might happen is that they meet a child, an older child who's dubious and the child is then puzzled and goes back and discusses this with their parents who realise at this point that the game is up. And so they say, well, actually, yes, um, we've, been, we've been telling you this, but um, uh, Santa Claus is, is, is make-believe. So, but then I would also say that, of course, um, it's not as if... Um, it's not as if the child's problems are over once they've sorted out the status of Santa Claus and and the Easter Bunny. I mean, after all, you know, many children and adolescents will go on to wonder whether what they've been told about received religion um, is equally mythical. And and there we're you know we're moving into more difficult ground. But nevertheless, it's not as if we should say to ourselves, well, by the time the child is reached early adolescence so they've solved these ontological problems and all is clear as to what belongs to the world of, of fantasy or versus the world of reality. Equally, if we start thinking about the child's notions about the past, um, an American child will get um, in, in informed about certain events in the past that have happened and um, the the march of history, so to speak, within the United States. But if the, the child then goes to a different culture, they may be confronted by a very different narrative about what the United States has done. So I'm just saying that <laughs> there's, no, there's no end to the extent to which some of, some of the received um, opinions that we've taken to be true might be undermined as we get older. But equally, of course, it's also possible that some of the some of the opinions that we've been encouraged to reject and to regard as mere fantasy when we were young may, in due course, be more appealing as we get older, or we might find people who support them and so forth. Well, that's, so, also, you know. that's also an argument for the idea that there's something adaptive and necessary about the child's imaginative powers and behaviors that, that pretend play and make believe have a role in 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 shaping our abilities and our skill sets for for later life, right? If I if if I can imagine um, how my wife or husband or boss or uh, enemy uh, in a war or whatever sees the world, how how that's different from the way I see the world. Uh, if um, I'm trying to think of other examples of this, but but it seems to me that well, uh, another example would be, I mean, we all close our eyes and imagine being able to fly. Um, some children, because maybe they can't imagine it as much as they want to, put on capes and jump off the garage roof and break their legs. So there's another way in which imagination is a better way of approaching something like that and more adaptive. But I mean, even but as we look into adult life, is the capacity of children to imagine and the chances that they get to to, to engage in make believe do those things um, set up outcomes later on in life? Well, I. I would say I would try to answer you in, in two parts. First of all, I, I would very much go along with your suggestion that this early ability to imagine alternatives um, is a sort of lifelong gift. And, I mean, if we take children who um, have um, autism, for example, we know two things about them which are fairly well established. First of all, that their um, imaginative abilities, their pretend play in childhood tends to be quite limited, 
But we also know that uh, as they go through life, they have difficulty in, in taking into account the thoughts and feelings of other people. So that would suggest that the, the typically developing child um, has both of those things available, the pretend play and the ability to look at some, take somebody else's point of view, and the two things are, are connected, so to speak, psychologically speaking. Um, so in that sense, I would, I would very much agree with you that this, this is a gift that we see um, in full flower in early childhood, but it, it, it continues to contribute to the way we think. And we can also think of other examples. So if, we, if, the, if the child grows up into somebody who is studying, say, a different time or a different place, be it as a historian or an anthropologist or an inventor, um, clearly they're going to continue to be able to they're going to continue to need that ability to to think about how things might be looked at differently or believed differently from from the particular perspective that they take on reality although it's uh it's interesting i mean when you when you say that because yes obviously barbara tuckman has an ability to imagine the middle ages uh, more vividly than you or i can uh on the other hand Oh, and I'm blocking her name right now. Someone will type it into me on the screen. But there's um, the famous uh, autistic woman who specializes in uh, animal husbandry and designing uh, slaughterhouses because she can – Temple Grandin, thank you very much um, – <laughs> Because she can imagine, she can, she may not be able to imagine uh, your emotional state or mine, or, or or necessarily navigate complex social interactions with other human beings. But for some reason or other, she can see the world the way a cow sees it uh, better than you or I can. Yes, yes, she's an she's an unusual and very interesting case. And um, I mean, one of her semi biographical books is called Thinking in Pictures, where she precisely emphasizes her ability to to visualize alternatives and particularly to visualize in a in a fairly detailed fashion how as you say cattle might might view the world and then to to design facilities that suit them better which which would suggest that um, so far you know we've been talking about the imagination as if it were a unitary Ability, but um, Temple Grandin, you know, it's a good reminder that there's no doubt specializations within this large domain, um, since she herself has also written uh, about her difficulties in in seeing other people's points of view, notwithstanding this this rather strong um, ability she has with respect to visualization. We're talking to Dr. Paul Harris. His books include The Work of the Imagination and his most recent Trusting What You're Told, How Children Learn from Others. Uh, we're going to move into a different area of the conversation, but Dr. Paul Harris is going to continue on with us. We'll take a break. We'll add another voice to the conversation after this. We're talking about imagination, 
uh, and creativity. I, they're not quite the same thing, but maybe we'll get to that as we go along here. Uh, Dr. Paul Harris may have something to say about that as well. But um, we also are, are going to add a, a new voice uh, to this conversation. We are going to talk a little bit more about um, creativity and imagination in the current environment, an environment unlike anyone that ever existed before. Uh, we have now a generation of children moving into young adulthood who have lived with digital culture, who have had, had access to the Internet uh, and to everything that goes along with the Internet for essentially their entire lives. So what does that do? Uh, Dr. Gary Small is a neuroscientist out of UCLA and the author of many books, including most recently, Brain: Surviving the Technological Alteration of the Modern Mind. Dr. Paul Harris is also still with us. I'm going to start uh, out with you, though, uh, Dr. Gary Small. Um, so uh, maybe the first thing we need, do need to do is talk about neuroplasticity, this kind of notion that the experiences that we have effectively write on our brains, write new patterns on our brains. Okay, that's my primitive way <laughs> of describing neuroplasticity. Uh, you give us the more sophisticated version. Well, I don't know if I can make it more sophisticated, but I can explain it as I understand it. And basically, our brains are nimble. They respond to the environment from moment to moment. Every sensory stimulus has an impact on our neurocircuitry. And I think that speaks to a very important principle to keep in mind, and that is the more time we spend with a particular mental experience, the stronger the neural circuits that control that experience. On the other hand, if we neglect certain experiences, the neural circuits that control those experiences will weaken. And I think there is, is where there's an opportunity and tremendous danger because young people especially are spending so much time with their technology that although it's strengthening the neural circuits that control that technology, it's weakening other neural circuits that control human contact skills, face-to-face communication skills. So the book is kind of, um, uh, in its largest picture, it really is kind of a portrait of, as you say, some enhanced um, neural abilities, but also a real portrait of atrophy, atrophy happening in different sectors of the brain, and then kind of almost an argument for a neural version of physical therapy, just the way that you would sort of move the arms and legs uh, of a patient whose uh, whose muscles were atrophying and uh, try to get them back doing their old job again. Um, you, you talk about that in the neural context, figuring out what's actually weakening through atrophy and how to, almost by exercise, strengthen up some of these areas, right? I, I like that concept, and it makes sense. And we've seen that when we uh, start applying some physical therapy, uh, quote-unquote, to, to some of these neural circuits, that they respond very quickly. So, and again, it speaks to the, the brain's plasticity. I mean, you can... Uh, talk to a young person. I mean, I've seen it in my own life when my kids were teenagers. I remember having a conversation with my daughter, and I said, well, Rachel, you know, when I'm talking with you and you're texting at the same time, I just don't get the sense that we're connecting. And she looked up at me for a moment and said, don't worry, Dad, I don't do this with my teachers, and then just went right on with her texting. So in, in that sense, it didn't have much impact. But if you give young people a chance to put down their devices and practice some face-to-face human contact skills, very quickly it has a huge impact. 
All right. Now, to get to the specifics of creativity and imagination, and by the way, I'll, I'll open the phone lines up here. Actually, they were always open. 860-275-7266. This conversation is going to be fairly specific to creativity and imagination. 860-275-7266. Let me beckon uh, Dr. Paul Harris back into this conversation because uh, I want to hear both of you on it. But, Paul, I'm going to uh, start with you. Um, as a devel- developmental psychologist, you're not working with the neuroscience. You're working working for the most part directly with little human beings. Um, but do you feel as though um, imagination and creativity, these concepts that we talked about during the first segment, are they, to your way of thinking, located somewhere in the brain or are they dispersed across a whole bunch of different you know, functioning geographical sec- sectors of the brain? Well, <clears throat> we do know that if we compare human beings to other non-human primates, the cortical areas are larger, and particularly the frontal cortical areas are larger. And we know that the frontal cortex is intimately connected with, uh, with planning and by implication with the imagination. But I mean, we're talking about large areas of the brain in any case, even when we're talking about the frontal areas. And I would also argue um, that it, it's it's extremely unlikely that when we're engaged in our imaginative flight, so to speak, that any one particular area of the brain is recruited. It may be especially recruited, but it, the brain tends to be um, tends to be a, a, a collaborative organ, so to speak. So various parts are going to be integrated in the, in any particular function, whether we're talking about sports or playing chess or or having a conversation or engaging in a flight of fantasy. So, and Gary Small, I want to know how that conversation looks to you, too. Obviously, in your book, you talk about um, certain kinds of excessive digital uh, life and digital behaviors and gaming behaviors, stunting frontal lobe development. But, you know, as, as uh, Paul Harris just said, well, the frontal lobe, that's like talking about Europe. You know, I mean, it's a it's a it's a big place and a lot of things are going on there. Is it possible uh, at the level of neuroscience to get more specific about imagination and about creativity? It's certainly possible. You can devise almost any experiment using functional MRI and locate a specific brain region that's triggered by that particular experiment. But then you devise another experiment, there'll be another brain region. And I would agree that creativity is going on throughout our brains, and and the frontal cortex is is sort of the executive master of all this. Now, some, some literature suggests the right brain tends to be the more creative brain, uh, but brain side. But, you know, I think it's really going on throughout the brain. It depends on the specific creative process. Um, Now, I want to get both of you on the subject of collaboration. Gary, I'm going to start with you and then go to Paul. But um, so one of the things you talk about in your book is um, and and it's it's one of the ways that we do understand creativity, not as the the solo isolated effort effort. Uh, of Picasso or Bach or Wallace Stevens to bring forth these uh, incredibly original thoughts located solely inside that person. But, you know, creativity often happens as a function of collaboration uh, as part of uh, the work of large groups. Researchers like Jeffrey West argue that cities become idea machines because people are constantly literally bumping into one another and, and exchanging ideas and sitting down in coffee shops and stimulating one another. So, one of the questions you explore in the book is, all right, so how does that 
how does that interact with digital culture? I mean, it has some good things and some bad things. You can Skype with somebody in Hong Kong and have a conversation with them, but you can also stare at your tablet for six hours and have a conversation with nobody, right? Yeah, I think it's mixed. I think that certainly uh, the technology will foster creativity by bringing people together uh, with common interests and, and diverse interests. On the other hand, there's uh, an element of the crowd behavior. So you may have a good idea and you, th- you get it out there in the blogosphere or you tweet it and it's shot down by other people. It's sort of homogenized. And there is some literature suggesting that uh, some isolation is important to foster the creative process. If you're spending hours and hours answering your email and, and tweeting and and involved with the technology, you don't have a moment to sit back and problem solve and see the big picture and think up new ideas. Um, Dr. Paul Harris, this is something you've really been looking at a lot, what you call testimony, uh, that in fact one of the ways that we uh, become more evolved intellectually and emotionally is simply by what we learn from what people tell us. Um, So, I mean, given that argument, it becomes really kind of important and vital for children to be in environments where they're talking and exchanging ideas, right? Yes, and I, I mean, I think in, in the ordinary course of development, we see this happening from a very early age. So there's some fascinating research on children's questions. Uh, children start to ask questions from about 18 months onwards, uh, sometimes as many as 50, 60, 120 questions per hour when you actually record them. And uh, when you then analyze the questions they're asking, some of them admittedly are for they're making requests or they're um, seeking clarification or they're asking permission. But the majority of those questions are actually getting seeking information and uh, a sizable proportion are seeking for explanations, you know, asking for asking how and why questions. So. Um, we see this, you know, from a very early age, this this willingness to realize on the part of the child that they may not know the answer, but by by asking by asking a well-targeted question, they can uh, they can increase their information, and they they can sometimes be quite tenacious as they ask question uh, questions about a topic that's been puzzling them, whether it's about dinosaurs or death or or whatever. So this is so, this shows you that perception uh, does condition our 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 apprehension of of life. I would have guessed that eighty percent of children's questions were "Can I have a popsicle?" and that twenty percent were "You know, why does it get dark at night?" Um, so it's it's reassuring to find out I'm completely wrong about that. Um, you know, I, Paul, Dr. Paul Harris, um, Gary Small is writing you know really about sort of cutting edge neuroscience research in, into the the brain activity of this new cohort uh, of children who've grown up entirely in a digital world. You've been studying children for decades and decades and decades all over the world. Um, I'm guessing that you think, for your purposes, for the kind of study and conclusions that you draw, it might be a little early for you to begin deciding how this cohort, these digital natives, as Dr. Gary Small calls them, uh, differ or don't differ from the homo sapiens that have preceded them. Yes. That's to say, I think... Whenever there's been a new technology, whether it was 
reading and writing or whether it was television or currently computers and um, phones, there's a good deal of anxiety about its impact and there are perhaps, uh, you know, premature conclusions about what the impact is. So if I step back in in terms of historical research on on reading and writing, I think it's it's um, there have been strong claims, for example, about the damage reading and writing might do to children's memories. There have also been strong claims about the benefits that that children and indeed adults might gain from seeing their thoughts written down and being able to peruse them repeatedly and to compare what they did say with what they now say. But it's taken, I would say, you know, 50, 60 years to temper some of the more uh, extreme claims about the, the, the ways in which these media will will have a, a dramatic effect on the brain. And I'm tempted to say we're seeing much the same pattern currently with, with electronic media that partly because the broader public is anxious, especially parents of young children who see them in front of screens too often. There's a good deal of anxiety, and it's easy, easy for scientists to to provide perhaps premature reassurance or, or to to uh, provoke even more anxiety prematurely. Uh, when we get to our final guest today, you'll hear uh, quite a bit of anxiety uh, and, and and more than that. Well, Dr. Gary Small, this is an interesting question. Uh, obviously, you know, the abbot of Sponheim was very worried about what uh, the movable type was going to do to human cognition and human faith and uh, wrote a whole tract about it and then had it published using movable type, which tended to undercut his argument a little bit. But, you know, as we go through all these kind of McLuhan-esque stages uh, of development, uh, as uh, Dr. Paul Harris says, there tends to be a lot of anxiety. In fact, that's what McLuhan said. There tends to be a lot of anxiety when there's something new. But it seems like reading your book, iBrain, Surviving the Technological Alteration of the Modern Mind, the neuroplasticity argument you're um, you're making is basically saying, no, this really is a different breed of cat. It's so pervasive. It's so all-encompassing. And it's so different. Um, it's such a huge quantum jump that, that we really have to look at it as a different breed of cat. It's complicated. I mean, we can't say that uh, using a computer is good or bad. Now, it's, it's bad if you're addicted to a video game and you're playing 14 hours a day. It's good, as, as we discussed earlier, if it fosters creativity. It helps you get your work done and brings about new ideas. So it really it has a lot to do with the content, the context, the dose if you if you will, of the technology. And I think we need to study. We need to understand it. And I would agree not to be uh, overly dramatic about the, the dangers. I think my grandmother thought that television was going to rot my brain when I was younger, and I seemed to survive it. So I think it, it really needs some systematic study to understand it. Uh, but I understand the anxieties of, of parents. Right. I, I would be willing to bet uh, Dr. Gary Small, that you know all of the lyrics to the theme to Gilligan's Island, uh, which in, 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 yeah, in, but, but ask me what I had for breakfast right. yesterday. The Gilligan's Island may be taking up important space in your brain, uh, but you're, and your grandmother was completely right. Otherwise, you'd probably uh, be able to recite Longfellow. Um, all right, so um, we're going to say goodbye and thank you very much to Dr. Paul Harris. Uh, he's the author. He's a professor of education at Harvard and the author of several books, including The Work of the Imagination and his most recent Trusting What You're 
told how children learn from others. Uh, investigate those books, please, if this subject has resonated with you. We'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll add one more guest to this conversation and your phone calls at 860-275-7266. announcer Jeez, see, they tell you to be imaginative, and then they give you all these Harry Potter spells that don't work. Today's show was produced by Allison Ehrenreich, Betsy Kaplan, and me. Our interns are Allison and Britt Hill. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by Mary Martin. For show pages, articles, and grainy photographs of the Faith Middleton Show staff blowing up Willy Wonka's chocolate factory, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, what Watergate means today. And now, back to Colin. Yes, very quickly, uh, mega props uh, to Alison Ehrenreich, Alison Ehrenreich, who uh, devised uh, this show and, and found the guests and has done a marvelous job with it. And yes, tomorrow, um, the son of Patrick Gray, the FBI chief from Stonington, Connecticut, who was embroiled in Watergate, Thomas Mallon, one of my favorite writers, and Michael Schudson, one of my favorite historians. They're all experts on Watergate, and are, we're going to have a very interesting conversation, I think, I predict, uh, and one that will be unlike other conversations about Watergate that you will be hearing during this uh, 40th anniversary time. All right. So still with us, Dr. Gary Small, a neuroscientist out of UCLA, the author of many books, including iBrain, Surviving the Technological Alteration of the Modern Mind. Uh, Joining us now also is Chris Rowan, a pediatric occupational therapist who has created a series of workshops to help families disengage from technology. Whoa, why would they want to do that? And connect and reconnect with each other. So um, Chris Rowan, let me just tell you a quick story from my summer. Uh, And I think it'll be a familiar story to you, and then I'll get you to react to it. So uh, um, I was sort of part of a group of people who were renting a beach cottage uh, this summer, and it turned and there were children there, and there was an eight-year-old and a three-year-old, and some other children from the family kind of dropping in there too. And it turned out that the children that the beach cottage didn't have uh, internet, and it didn't um, even have very good cell phone reception. Um, and despite the fact that the children were at the beach uh, and going to camp actually during the day, and in a time of vivid imagination and the ability to be stimulated by their physical outdoor environment, blah 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 blah. They really regarded this as an emergency, like an emergency like um, uh, an astronaut whose air hose has been disconnected. I mean, this this is something a problem that really needed to be addressed now. And, and it took place within these elaborate negotiations they were having with their parents all the time about what is now referred to as screen time. Um, and I'm guessing that this story isn't anything that surprises you or, or is uh, any kind of oddity, right? You hear stories like this all the time. Yes, I do. <laughs> um, so, and, and it's getting uh, more and more problematic in the realm of, of child behavior. Like, I've, I've been a pediatric occupational therapist for 27 years, and uh, my referrals used to be for physical disability issues now. They're for severe behaviors, tantrums, aggression, violent outbursts. Um, I'm seeing kids who've been kicked out of daycare preschool. They're out of school because of, of problematic behaviors. So, um, it's it's the landscape has really changed as an occupational therapist in in um, how I'm working uh, with children and the problems that I'm seeing in these kids. 
So, and Gary Small, as she's talking, you know, I'm thinking about your book, too. And obviously the book, your book is full of these interesting prescriptions. They're very humanistic prescriptions, you know. Go look at yourself in the mirror and get some kind of sense of what your overall body image is. Or, you know, go for a walk or interact face-to-face with somebody instead right. of uh, online. But, you know, the, the picture she's painting is one of some patients, so to speak, who are so addicted that something as simple as that is not going to work any more than saying to an alcoholic, well, why don't you go to the gym instead of getting drunk? No, it won't work with the more severe cases. And in fact, in in Asia, they've had uh, sort of rehab centers similar to drug detox centers where uh, young people who are addicted to the video games or other technology uh, are forced to get away from it, to, to wean themselves from the compelling urge to continue with the technology. And, you know, it's a challenge because our brains are wired to crave novelty. That's, that's why, you know, you always have to come up with a new idea for uh, a show the next day, or uh, we have uh, lots of new content and material coming out every day because we don't like the reruns. We don't like the old stuff. And the technology allows us to continue to explore new things, and, it, and it's just hard for us to let go of it. Um, Chris Rowan, um, the other part of the story that I didn't tell was the adult part of this story. So guess who else thought it was like having the air hose disconnected, not to have the Internet, to have limited phone connectivity? Most of the adults, including me, in fact, I thought, no Internet? Fine, I'll get in my car and I'll drive until I'm at a coffee shop where there is Internet. So it's, it's really not just this generation of what uh, Gary Small calls digital natives uh, who, who have this problem, right? Even those of us who are what he calls digital immigrants, you know, are, are rivals to digital culture later in our lives. We're still pretty addicted uh, to, to, to these tools. Yes, and, and you know what, what our, our culture is doing is we're pointing the finger at the child, like we're individualizing what is really a systemic problem. Because when I see these children and I go into the home, I, I have the luxury of actually working in home clinic and, and school-based settings, and I go into the home, what I'm observing is a, a detachment between the parent and the child. Now, we know attachment is life-sustaining. It's really the most important um, aspect of, of human relationship. And yet, um, as parents are attaching more and more to their devices, they're detaching from the child. And these, um, what I'm calling our de- detachment um, issues, are really what are underlying the severe behaviors that we're observing in the children. And the exposure to the media violence is underlying a lot of the aggression and the explosive violent outbursts that, that we're seeing in children in school and daycare preschool settings. So um, I work with the families in reconnecting, so disconnecting from the tech, reconnecting with, with each other. But this becomes very problematic with families that are heavily addicted because they don't even know how to socialize with each other anymore. The, the adults don't know how to talk to, the, the parents aren't talking to each other. Um, they're disconnected and, and not talking to the kids. And, you know, where we start is so basic. Like I, I suggest just carving out an hour, some sacred time around dinner, like dinner prep, dinner eat, dinner clean up. All the tech goes into a box somewhere where you can't hear it vibrating or, or, or ringing. And this, is where we start, and this is like very, very difficult for, for families because they say to me, "Well, what are we going to talk about? What are we going to do?" <laughs> um, they have such a poverty of of imagination, of creativity, 
and such low skill level um, in, in in other interests uh, because all they have is is the virtual the virtual world. Well, you know, I mean, uh, Dr. Gary Small, if uh, heroin were like baking soda, nobody would be addicted to it. So the reason that people get addicted to digital culture is it provides them with a lot. And just to come back to this notion of creativity and imagination, and, you know, this first cohort that you've been studying, they're just the first cohort. It's it's kind of difficult to know what what generations of the future will be like. But I keep thinking, you know, if Brian Eno had been brought up in a rural, in rural Ghana, in, you know, born in 1946, he probably wouldn't have been Brian Eno. He would have made sort of, you know, indigenous music that sounded kind of cool, but that would have been as, probably about as far as he could have gone. He was bought, brought up in a more industrial and diverse environment, so he made a more complex kind of technological music. Uh, if he was had been born in 2014 and had access to everything that a child now has, I'm assuming that he, he will build, he would build more sophisticated music. I mean, in that sense, creativity, creative, creative, creatively, digital culture is kind of alluring. It's alluring, and it's and it's shaping who we will be. I mean, to to have an argument to say we've got to take everybody offline and force them uh, to have offline time, I think you're going to lose that argument. And even where we know the technology is extremely dangerous, texting and driving, uh, we have a hard time regulating and policing that. You know, when they have in states where they have. Uh, laws where you can't text and drive, what people tend to do is they hold their phones uh, low so the police can't see that they're texting, and that makes it even more dangerous. So it's, it's hard to say what's going to happen. Now, we talk about young children, we tend to focus on them, and, and I, like many other people, have a concern about that because their brains are developing, and it raises the question, you know, here they're, they're learning empathy skills. Their frontal lobes, the executive functioning skills, are developing. Will uh, all this technology stunt that development? Will we have a less empathic, uh, a less uh, complex reasoning generation 20 years from now? Yeah, and unfortunately we're out of time here, but uh, the picture that you paint is a disturbing one. Uh, somebody who doesn't have enough empathy to realize that uh, somebody else might be out there on a bicycle is now also texting and not caring that there might be somebody on a bicycle. So that's not good. I ride a bicycle a lot. That's why I worry about it. All right, not, that, not because I have empathy for anyone else, apparently. All right, so anyway, thank you so much uh, to Allison for putting the show together. Dr. Paul Harris, Dr. Gary Small, Chris Rowan, pediatric occupational therapist. We'll be back tomorrow with Why. Watergate. I'm Kyone Wolf, and for the end of the show, I was trying to come up with something imaginative and funny, but.